Good. Thank you. Um, there'll be a few more coming in, but uh, Dahlia uh, Mogahed has to leave at 5, so I want to get started before we, we run out of time with everyone here. My name is Richard Herman. I'm director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies here at Ohio State. And I'm very happy this afternoon to be able to introduce a project done by the Search for Common Ground in Washington, D.C., in conjunction with the Consensus Building Institute in Cambridge. It deals with the relationship between the United States and the Muslim world, a topic that's obviously had huge implications for the United States and, frankly, international security over the last decade, and we have every reason to believe will continue to shape the security environment for some time to come. Uh, today, <clears throat> we're going to hear about the results of a project that was put together by two institutes very well known for seeking consensus and for uh, conflict intervention who were concerned that the dialogue between Muslims and Americans wasn't what it needed to be and the dialogue among Americans about what the U.S. relationship with the Muslim world wasn't what it needed to be either. And they brought together 34 uh, very prominent Americans to wrestle for the better part of well, more than a year uh, to try to come up with some consensus on which path America could take in the future, and there are places where they did reach agreement and there are places where they didn't, as you'll hear. Uh, today we're going to hear the fruits of that, that effort, and you see the book that's distributed, which is also the fruit of that project. The moderator today will be two, Robert Fersh, uh, who's the executive director of, of Search for Common Ground USA and co-director of the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project, and Ms. Uh, Paula Gutlove, at the far end, who is the Deputy Director of the Institute for Resources and Security Studies in Cambridge and the Project Manager of the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project. I'd also like to welcome our two uh, speakers this afternoon who were part of the 34 that were brought together as national leaders here in the United States. The first is Dahlia Mogahed, uh, who is the Executive Director of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies. And the Gallup Center, as you may know, is a nonpartisan research organization that provides data-driven analysis on views of Muslims and Muslim populations around the world. Uh, lastly, Thomas Dine is the director of the Syria Project for the Search for Common Ground. He's also a senior policy advisor for the Israeli Policy Forum. And from 1980 uh, to 1993, uh, Tom was the former uh, was the executive director of the American-Israeli. Public Affairs Committee. Uh, we have a very distinguished group here. And my job now is to introduce this project by hitting play, and hopefully a movie will come up which will introduce us all to the work they did, and then they will come back up here, and Dahlia and Tom will hold forth. So let's see if this works. They are one-fifth of the world's population, 1.2 billion people, Muslims. 56 countries from North Africa to Southeast Asia have Muslim majorities. While the Muslim people are a diverse group, the relationships between the United States and the Muslim world are too often marked by conflict and distrust. Many Americans, Muslims in other countries, and people around the world yearn for more peaceful and respectful relations. The relationship between the United States and the Muslim world is the single largest issue of national security and safety uh, to, uh, to both the U.S. population and the rest of the world that uh, we've faced since perhaps the, uh, the nuclear uh, uh, standoffs. It's particularly important to have a real initiative 
to change America's mode of interaction with the Muslim world and hopefully change their perceptions of us in the process. America, I think, is an exceptional nation. And what we are for and should be for is diversity, uh, respect for other religions. Many people fear that further deterioration in U.S.-Muslim relations will continue to fuel the growth of extremism and the risk of catastrophic attacks. To address this concern, two groups dedicated to building consensus came together to create the U.S.-Muslim Engagement Project. Overall, what we're looking to do here is signal the need for a substantial change of course and the opportunity for that change of course to lead to substantial improvement in relations. But what should that change of course look like? What kinds of new strategies are needed? 34 experienced American leaders were called to be part of the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project's leadership group. The group includes a former Secretary of State, former members of Congress, a retired general, and other leaders from diverse religious, cultural, political, and business backgrounds. One-third of the members are Muslim, and all members of the leadership group gather around one table. You had people of diverse views who came together for a reason. The reason was to see, are there bridges? Can we build understanding? Is there a way to transform the reality? The one thing's very clear. If you get together only with people who agree with you, well, what's the point? When you have basic misunderstandings, you have to find ways to see if they can be overcome. Over 18 months, the group discussed, disagreed, and ultimately overcame differences to find common ground on dozens of specific recommendations on a wide range of issues detailed in this report. Changing course, a new direction for U.S. relations with the Muslim world. The new course they recommend focuses primarily on what actions the U.S. can take, but it also stresses the role of the leaders and peoples of Muslim-majority countries. When we ask Muslims around the world what the Muslim world can do to improve relations with the West, their most frequent response is about controlling extremism. So there is a recognition uh, among Muslims that this is a problem. In fact, when asked what their greatest fear is, many people say that their greatest fear in their own country is being, uh, is being a victim of terrorist attack. In the U.S., misunderstandings abound. Polls show nearly half of Americans consider most Muslims to be violent, but only a tiny minority are. Many Americans also regard the conflict with the Muslim world to be inevitable. But hard data from the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies, which conducts polling across the Muslim world, found exactly the opposite. The most important finding, though, was that the conflict between the United States and Muslim populations around the world is not inevitable because uh, anger is at our perceived actions, not our values or our principles. They talk about what they admire most about the West in general is transparency of government, the rule of law. In other words, the so-called clash of civilizations, so widely discussed in Western media, is not borne out by what Muslims around the world say they want. When Muslims say they are frustrated by American actions, they admire American values, including broad support for democracy. The polling data also showed strong support for women's rights, including the right to vote. Majorities of Americans and Muslims abroad say they want peace and amicable relations, although there are certainly caveats. 
there are important religious and cultural differences that are not easily resolved. But fundamentally, we think there's a series of policies and actions that we can change and they can change that can begin to create a much more peaceful relationship between the United States and the larger Muslim world. We can, we can work with problems. We can resolve problems when we have built relationships. To build this improved relationship, the leadership group recommends a blueprint for change resting on four pillars. In short, diplomacy to resolve conflicts, better governance, economic reform, and mutual respect and understanding. The pillars are closely linked. It's very important to see all four going together. I've always had a very hard time in any discussion that I have about political, economic, or uh, ideological issues to separate them from each other. And uh, I think when anything is complicated, you talk about it as multifaceted. So this is, in fact, a multifaceted issue, and those four pillars go together. I think that what we have to say is, yeah, we have to be able to use force when it's in our national interest. But um, we also know that some of the deep-seated economic problems, cultural problems, political problems that exist in the region help to recruit people into terrorist movements that are precisely the thing that we're trying to fight in this country. The first pillar calls on the U.S. government to use diplomacy as the main tool for resolving conflicts involving Muslim countries. The leadership group was passionate about this point. And I think we should forcefully say that currently the options of conversation, dialogue, diplomacy, and even negotiations have been profoundly taken off the table in too many cases. One crucial case for diplomacy is the U.S. relationship with Iran. The report calls on the U.S. government to engage with Iran to explore the potential for agreements that could increase regional security. So there is a competition with Iran throughout the region. Uh, and the question is how to deal with it. If you look at their behavior, their behavior, in fact, is changeable from time to time. So it's in our interest to see if there's a way to alter Iranian behavior. I believe it's possible to change the Iranian behavior, but I think it requires a combination of sticks and carrots. The report also calls for the U.S. to work intensively for de-escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a viable path to a two-state solution that ensures the security of both peoples. The U.S. has to be uh, more involved diplomatically in trying to resolve a problem that's very difficult. I don't think anybody would say that it's been easy and people haven't worked on it, but it is um, it isn't the only issue, but it is the one that is pointed to a great deal as a sign that the two worlds can't come together. The first pillar also calls for deepening U.S. investments in conflict resolution and political reconciliation in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. The second pillar calls on the U.S. government and civic organizations to promote good governance and help expand civic participation in Muslim countries. When they complain about their government, that's what they complain about, corruption and things don't work. They just want things to work. And the corruption is all the way down and lack of efficient um, functioning of institutions, of state institutions, they're supposed to serve them. So. When Americans talk about promoting democracy, you shouldn't think first and foremost about having an election. There are certain things that you have to have in order to get to the point of being a successful functioning democracy. You have to have respect for women and minority groups, and you have to have viable political parties that actually represent the interests of people. 
You have to have certain protections of civil liberties, access to media. Um, there, are, there are a whole bunch of things that have to happen that we again call the preconditions of democracy. It's very difficult when you're talking about trying to transform uh, societies, when you're trying to produce what amounts to a kind of social, economic, political development. It's very important that you do so on the basis of institutions. The third pillar calls on the U.S. government and business leaders to help catalyze job-creating growth in Muslim countries. The people that travel through the region will know well that if they were given a list of choices, what do you want to change now? I think number one would be the acute conflicts. Number two would be the economic realities. I want my kid to get a job. I want the education that he has to mean something. I want there to be a, a, an economy that's functioning and transparent and free. Some of these countries, as I think we allude here, have as much as 50% of their gross domestic product captured by the gray market. The way ahead on that is to, is to reduce those barriers to entry in such metrics as how many days or weeks or months does it take to license a business, uh, how effective is contract enforcement, and so on. This third pillar calls for economic policy reforms and new investments to help generate jobs in Muslim countries. Currently, even bankruptcy laws make it highly risky to do something as simple as open a business. We mentioned reforming the insolvency and bankruptcy regimes in these countries to decriminalize bankruptcy. For goodness sakes, if you put your capital at risk and go bankrupt, you're thrown into jail and you're a criminal. This third pillar also recommends the use of trade agreements to reward economic reform and spur investment. So if we're serious about seeing uh, the Islamic community grow and prosper, uh, free trade agreements, gold standard free trade agreements, I think is indispensable to allow the, the, the nascent economic well-being of these countries in the Islamic community to be unfettered, to grow. Finally, the fourth pillar. It calls on Americans and Muslims around the world to improve mutual respect and understanding through education, exchange, and interfaith dialogue. After the leadership group was formed, the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project also organized citizen dialogues across the country. While those sessions showed that Americans face a steep learning curve about Islam and the diversity of Muslim cultures, people also expressed a yearning to learn more. The results of the dialogue were then fed back into the leadership group discussion so that when the leaders were discussing what can change, they were able to take into consideration thoughts and concerns that were expressed. To address Americans' need to learn more, the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project recommends dramatically expanding cross-cultural education and people-to-people -people exchanges. I come from that generation of practitioners who used to say X problem is complicated enough, let's not bring God and religion into it. But the more that I learned, uh, it's, the role of religion is very large and therefore our diplomats and our uh, politicians need to become versed in the religious background of various conflicts that we have and develop the right language to be able to have a dialogue. To commence that dialogue, the report issues a call for action to the next U.S. president, specifically recommending that he speak to the need for improving relations with the Muslim world in the 2009 inaugural address. Then in the administration's first months, 
announce and start to implement a strategy to improve U.S.-Muslim relations, reaffirm the U.S. prohibition of torture, begin a major diplomatic effort to resolve regional conflicts and promote security and cooperation in the Middle East, engaging with Iran and seeking permanent resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should have the highest priority. Convene a business government summit on economic reform in the Middle East and create an international initiative for Americans and Muslims around the world to learn about each other's history, culture and societies. Taken together, the 150-page report with its four pillars and presidential call to action present a dramatic, perhaps monumental challenge, but the leadership group says it is one the United States must take on. This is the risk for our children and grandchildren for the 21st century, and we haven't gotten it right. In many cases, we've gotten it profoundly wrong. We've created uh, a situation in which a billion people in this world are at risk of hating the United States. Now they don't yet, but increasing numbers of them do. The fact is, is we're going to have to change course. We have a stake in ensuring that those who believe in creating a more hopeful future, a, a future that is a more tolerant future, a future that is, is governed by non-corruption and the embodiment of justice, is something that uh, is not only good for the people in those countries, but it's also very good for the United States. So good afternoon. I'm Rob Fersh, and I work for a wonderful international nonprofit known as Search for Common Ground, based in Washington, D.C. And I am the co-director of the U.S. Muslim Engagement Project uh, with David Fairman, who's not with us today. And the project manager is Paula Gutlow, who's now up on the podium with us, and she has also led our citizen engagement efforts. First, uh, let me say thank you to all of you for coming, for showing interest in this work. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed seeing the video which uh, Link TV produced for us as a way to summarize the report in a way we wouldn't have to each time <laughs> restate it ourselves. And what you saw there are people actually who are members of our leadership group uh, contributing to uh, an explication of the report. I also want to start by thanking uh, Rick Herman and Melanie uh, uh, Mann and the Hirshon Center for hosting us and bringing us out to uh, engage in a series of events uh, last night and today. We really appreciate the warm welcome and the ability to be here. And I'm very honored also to be, uh, if you will, the moderator uh, for the main speakers. I will speak very briefly. Uh, two very distinguished uh, members of our leadership group, uh, Dalia Magahed and uh, Tom Dine. Uh, Rick has already introduced them. I won't elaborate other than to say what a terrific uh, members they were of the leadership group and they embody themselves uh, the kind of dialogue that we think is key to how people make progress in solving difficult problems in this country. Um, 
And as you saw, it was flashed before, and you all have the report. We have a whole website for the project uh, called www.usmuslimengagement.org. Lots of supporting materials. And if you want to download additional copies of the report and, or want to download it in Arabic, you can find it on our website. Um, this project actually started several years ago. Two nonprofits independently were thinking and then got in touch with each other with a sense that maybe there's something, uh, something unique we could contribute uh, to the world. Um, there was, in the wake of the invasion of, of our military actions in Afghanistan and Iraq, deep concern about whether the U.S. was on the right course. And regardless of how one felt about our military involvement in those places, uh, there was a concern about whether the approach would work in the long run. As one former Republican congressman said to me, um, this is three, three and a half years ago, he said, you know, I, I, he said, I support the president's uh, military actions in Afghanistan and Iraq, but I have a deep concern that we may be creating terrorists faster than we can deal with them. So maybe it is time for us to take a bipartisan open look at what's the right long-term strategy. And we got that resonance everywhere we turned. We talked to people of all political stripes and backgrounds, religions, and what kept coming back to us is that nobody was actually forming this dialogue. Remember that several years ago, really the country was deeply confused. Were we in a clash of civilizations? What do the Muslims want? Why do they hate us? And one former assistant secretary and ambassador said to me, let's get the analysis right. And I think one of the things that we did uniquely, uh, CBI and Search for Common Ground, is we had a vision that said, let's do a search for wisdom. Let's bring together not just people of diverse politics, which we did, and you can look at our list. We've got evangelist leaders, 11 Muslim leaders, uh, Jewish leaders, uh, military, diplomatic, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, but let's, so let's bring together a multidisciplinary approach. And I think that also made it unique so that we had every perspective that might uh, help us think through this issue in a way that we had an integrative, a comprehensive kind of response. And uh, so what what we then came together to do, with support of several foundations that are listed in, your, in, the, in the report, was to do two things. One, to create a coherent, broad-based, and bipartisan strategy and set of recommendations to improve relations between the U.S. and the larger Muslim world. And by the way, we use Muslim world. It's, we know it's not a good, an, a fully apt term, but there's, there's no better term we come up, could come up with. We do recognize in the report lays out very carefully. There is no monolithic Muslim world, but we are trying to indicate that we're not just talking about one country. There is a larger, if you will, issue uh, as between the United States and uh, Muslim peoples and communities throughout the world. So the first thing was to come up to a, with a strategy, and our second goal was to communicate and advocate this strategy in ways that shift U.S. public opinion and contribute to changes in U.S. policies and public and private uh, policies and actions. And, you know, we're very pleased to say uh, if you looked at um, this video, when you, this, the call to action. Now, this video was made six months ago, so please remember that. And the report was finished six months ago. So this is pre-election, uh, but we purposely wanted to come out at a time so we would talk to both parties in a way that um, no matter who was elected, we might help shape the future of U.S.-Muslim relations. So, um, and what we're very pleased to say is that much of the checklist you, hear, you heard is now already going on right now. In fact, three weeks ago, at a presentation at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, 
Madeleine Albright, uh, who was joined by Vin Weber, a former Republican congressman and uh, former chair of the National Endowment for Democracy, she opened the session by saying about President Obama, I feel like he has read this report. And in point of fact, uh, he may have. We don't know. But the report has been widely circulated uh, within the administration and across uh, other places. So let me, I'm just going to conclude uh, before I turn it over to Dahlia and then Tom by just uh, saying a little bit more about um, what's been done since the report has been issued. Because our goal, uh, CBI and Search for Common Ground, and amongst our leadership group who are deeply committed, was not just to do a report, but if you will, to change the world a bit. So we've been working very hard to implement this report, and this is part of that effort, a rollout effort where we have speaking engagements at academic institutions, media appearances, op-eds, but also working closely with policy leaders. So here's a, a number of things we've been doing, just so you have some background. First, when we released the report with the assistance of the Edelman uh, Public Relations Firm, we had major coverage in major newspapers, uh, Parade Magazine, uh, AP, across the country. Uh, several op-eds have been placed, as I mentioned, since then, and with, with people of diverse points of view, often paired up. So people say, oh, what, that's interesting. For instance, about, what, a month ago, Tom Dine, former executive director of APAC, and Ziad Asli, director of the task force on Palestine, joined in an op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer on Gaza and what had happened in Gaza. But you had two voices, who, people who, who knew each other a bit before this process. But, I'm going to ask, one of the things I'm going to ask Tom and Dahlia to talk a little bit is, about is the nature of this process and how it influenced them. And so, um, and that's a sidebar point I want to just make to you before I go through a few other things that we've been doing and turn it over. Um, this is a little bit of self-promotion, uh, so let me make that clear. But part of what we've been doing at Search for Common Ground and CBI is trying to model the fact that there are ways in which people of deep differences can come to substantial agreement on really tough issues. And while Rick was right to say there were a few issues where we couldn't come together, basically we have 34 people unanimously backing this report with very strong recommendations for a change in course. And we do think in this era where people are concerned about bipartisanship and postpartisanship, despite the partisanship on the passage of the stimulus package, we think there are ways to bring people together, especially on longer-term issues that create common ground solutions that everyone agrees are far better than what the current policies hold. And I'd be delighted to answer questions or talk to people about the passion with which we hold that, um, we hold that vision. So again, we had a lot of media coverage of this report. Uh, as soon as the report was uh, final, we reached out to both campaigns, McCain and Obama, very well received by both campaigns. Um, since the election, uh, the report's been shared widely within the Clinton administration with Secretary I mean, within the, within the Obama administration with Secretary Clinton, uh, uh, General Jim Jones, who's the head of the National Security Council, has been briefed on this report. And as you can see already, uh, in the first month, President Obama's first actions have been entirely consistent with the report's recommendations, including his statement to the Muslim world in his inaugural address, his appointment of special envoys, George Mitchell and Richard Holbrook, his orders to close Guantanamo, and his instincts to engage with Iran. Just an aside... When we were sitting in our group talking about uh, the Middle East, we said, um, you know, President, really, the new president, where he is, ought to appoint someone like, like a George Mitchell, with the powers of a, that a George Mitchell had in Ireland to take care of some of the issues in the Middle East. And then someone very much like a George Mitchell has been appointed. 
Um, we are also working on the economic front, working with uh, former General Dan Christman to organize the Conference of Muslim and American Business Leaders uh, to, to develop the economic plank. Uh, and that's very exciting. We've distributed 5,000 copies of this report, and now you have the new second edition here. And of course, we produced this video, and it's out and around the world. So let me just conclude my remarks and get, get you over to Dahlia and Tom uh, by just reading to you the quote that's at the front of this report because I think it aptly states the fundamental assumption underlying the project in the report. Here's the quote. If we are to have partners for peace, then we must first be partners in sympathetic recognition that all mankind possesses in common like aspirations and hungers, like ideals and appetites, like purposes and frailties, a like demand for economic advancement. The divisions between us are artificial and transient, our common humanity is God-made and enduring. From President Dwight D. Eisenhower at the Centennial Commencement uh, uh, Address for Penn State University in 1955. So, Daya, without further ado. Uh, Good afternoon. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for taking time out of your Friday afternoon to, to come and, and engage with us on this important topic. What I'd like to do today is to take you back about two years ago when this project started. And I'd like to show you and kind of relive the initial presentation, the initial analysis on um, what this whole conflict that we're talking about now uh, changing course on, what was uh, at the heart of it. And, and this is actually the presentation that uh, I gave to the initial leadership group, and, and we discussed uh, the results of, of our work. Now, before I start, I want to explain what we were trying to do at Gallup, the organization that I represent, in, in listening to people's opinions around the world. With the, the downward spiral of the relationship between the United States specifically and, and Muslims around the world, there has been a vocal fringe of uh, extremists who have called the West the enemy of all that Islam stands for. And then on the other side, there's also been a vocal fringe that has said that the Islam is the enemy of everything the West stands for. And yet, the group that we seldom hear from are the other billion Muslims um, and non-Muslims who reject both extremes. And with all that we have at stake, it was really time to democratize the debate. And that's what we tried to do at Gallup by giving ordinary people a voice in this discussion. Very briefly, what I will be discussing is data uh, collected from more than 40 countries representing 90% of the global Muslim population. Uh, very quickly, our methodology covers people 18 to uh, 18 and over, and we do 
uh, a sample size of 1,000 in each country which are representative and project to the nation as a whole. We cover both rural and urban populations, young and old, educated and illiterate, and all of our interviews are done in home and face-to-face. So briefly, what we'll cover here today is what are the opinions of the United States across the Muslim world? What is at the heart of those opinions? What the problem is not, conventional wisdom versus data, and then what the problem actually is? So where were we in 2007? And in many cases, um, we we have only changed, hopefully, uh, we've only begun to change for the positive now. Unfavorable opinion of the United States has been on the up, upscale. So if you compare 2001 and 2005, things have gotten worse in many countries. Uh, one exception actually was Iran, where things actually improved, which was very interesting. And, and that improvement was right before Iran was called an axis of evil. And now, unfortunately, after that, it, it got worse. Um, but you also see Lebanon, where in 2006, um, in September, you remember the, the war in Lebanon, it, it got even worse, even though Lebanon was one of the countries that was relatively favorable to the United States. Now, Turkey uh, is especially alarming, and, and that is uh, related, of course, to the invasion of Iraq. However, anti-American sentiment is not, during at least for the past eight years, was not unique to Muslims. So if you look at um, Germany, uh, is, is actually very similar to Saudi Arabia in their unfavorable opinions of the United States. France, Greece uh, are actually worse than Jordan. And this is all, of course, represents the general public in each country. So anti-American sentiment is not uh, purely an issue in the past eight years that we were dealing with um, on the part of Muslims. But is this a hatred of our way of life? And like the video said uh, briefly, the answer is no. So what we found is when we asked people what they admired most about the West, what we heard was in fact that they admired our freedom. So a Saudi Arabian respondent said it was freedom of the press, opinion and expression, also scientific advancement. An Iranian said social justice and having access to nuclear power. Real democracy. In Pakistan, it was the way they work hard, and it has helped them develop in, uh, developing in their countries, and also liberty and freedom and being open-minded with each other was a respondent in Morocco. So what you get from these, uh, these spontaneous statements to an open-ended question, and what we found overall is that our freedom was one of the things that people admired the most. So when you look at the different things that people associate with the United States, on the positive end, they associate us with being technologically advanced and having liberty for our own citizens. But on the negative, they also associate the U.S. with being arrogant, ruthless, and hypocritical. And some people also associate us with being religious um, extremists. But are people concerned for better relations? The answer is... Overall, yes. 
the majority in many countries, the United States uh, general public as well as publics around the Muslim world, say that better relations with the other is of personal concern. However, many people don't perceive the other side to share that concern. So there is this gap in perception. Both sides are saying they care about better relations, but in general, both sides don't believe the other shares that concern. So how did we get here? Let's start with um, what the problem is not. So conventional wisdom versus data. Anti-American sentiment is not primarily driven by cultural or religious differences. It does not correlate with Arab satellite news viewership, and it is not an indication of widespread support for terrorism. So just as um, an example of this idea, anti-American sentiment is not primarily driven by cultural or religious differences. If we compare people's views of the United States to people's views of Canada, which of course is very similar to us in terms of cultural and religious um, nature or makeup, it, it's, it's dramatically different. So this is data from 2006 out of Kuwait where uh, a majority have expressed unfavorable views of the United States. This was during the uh, war in Lebanon, but only 3% say the same about Canada. We also find that when we compare views of the United States and other modern Western democracies in Europe, France and Germany as an example, we see similar, uh, a similar trend where an overall average of 70% associate the word ruthless with the U.S., but only a small minority associate the same with two other Western democracies. Now, this was a, a bit of a surprise to uh, myself and other researchers. We also found no correlation with viewing um, Arab satellite TV. So we found that those who have positive opinions of the U.S., they watch Al Jazeera just as much as those with negative opinions of the U.S. So this this chart is sometimes a bit hard to understand, but essentially the blue bar are people who have favorable opinions of the U.S., and the beige bar are people with unfavorable opinions. And as you can see, both groups watch Al Jazeera, in fact, exactly the same. And um, Al Arabiya, it's, it's, it's also the same issue, um, with, of course, the difference being within our margin of error. Finally, anti-American sentiment is not an indication with widespread support for anti-American terrorism. So having people express anti-American sentiment does not equal having them um, agree or support, in terms of the public, anti-American terrorism. Now, what is the problem? What are the perceptions associated with anti-American sentiment? we essentially found three main themes. Perception of cultural disrespect, perception of political domination, and the issue of acute conflicts. Now, what this model shows is uh, the fact that these three perceptions are lenses through which people view the actions and words of the United States. 
what's novel or our, our big contribution to this discussion from the data is that the three lenses are not independent. They reinforce each other. So for example, um, we will hear a respondent say, the US does not respect Muslims. Look at what they're doing in Iraq. Now you've got acute conflicts and the issue of disrespect, where we wouldn't normally think they connect they in fact do in the minds of people. Or the US uh, stands for democracy, but treats Muslims, say in, um, in Guantanamo, in a, very, uh, in a way that is not conducive or not in line with its espoused values. That means that the US disrespects Muslims. So these three things are self uh, or, or mutually reinforcing, and therefore have to be dealt with together, and that's in fact what the report has done. So just to explain what I mean by this idea of disrespect, when we asked people around the world, this was an open-ended question, what can the West do to improve relations with the Muslim world? The most frequent response, whether we were talking to a Moroccan or an Indonesian, was to respect Muslims as equals. So some examples of verbatim responses. A whole lobby of the West is working against Muslims and damaging our image. They should stop and respect Islamic values. Moroccan said, the West has to change and moderate their attitudes toward Muslims. They have to not look down on our people. And finally, Lebanon said, don't classify all Arabs as terrorists. Protest against any defiling of the Quran and punish those who do so, like those in Guantanamo jail. Now what about political domination? Here's what we've heard. Should stop their interference in their internal affairs in the name of democracy. In Lebanon, must change its colonization policy and bring about equality among nations instead of trying to dominate them. Iranians said, the US must stop its interference in the affairs of our country because they only think of their own benefit. And a Saudi Arabian said, change the fact that the countries of the West uh, try to dominate the Islamic world rather than improve it. And we looked at uh, data from uh, other questions where we asked people to tell us if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. The U.S. will allow people in the region to fashion their own political future. Now, what's interesting about this is that while uh, in Kuwait, Morocco, um, all the way through to um, Pakistan, the majority say they don't agree. It's interesting to show that in Afghanistan, in fact, a slight majority says yes, um, that they do agree with that statement, showing that it is possible to engage people around this idea. But what really elicited the most emotion is this idea of acute conflicts, and that's why the report uh, talks about resolving these. In Pakistan, um, the belief it said, their belief is torture people, especially if they are Muslims, uh, referring to um, Abu Ghraib. What I resent most is, what, is that they bully small countries such as Iraq and Iran. And this is uh, a respondent from Malaysia, someone who is not directly affected by these conflicts, but still um, is concerned about them. Morocco, stop war with Arabic people and respect civilians in Iraq especially. Again, the acute conflicts being um, such a source of, uh, of concern. 
Now, in Lebanon, this was probably one of our strongest statements, where this was during the um, conflict, uh, right after the conflict, a conflict in, in Gaza, not the one we just had. Uh, but it said, halt the Israeli terrorist attacks against Palestinians, especially what's happening in Gaza Strip recently. Stop the American terrorism in Iraq. I hope they know that they are the terrorists and not Islam. Now, what this statement shows is that it really is taking the language that people uh, perceive as being used against them and turning it around, showing a very uh, a great deal of anger that is rooted in these acute conflicts, showing uh, or really uh, pushing for a resolution of these issues. Finally, um, to, to further this point, the majority of people, including Iranians, did say that they felt the invasion of Iraq did more harm than good, from 57% in Iran all the way to 94% of Egyptians. So finally, to summarize, though Muslims admire America's democratic values, anti-American sentiment is widespread and on the rise in many countries. Anti-American sentiment is driven primarily by perceptions of disrespect, political domination, and acute conflicts not cultural or religious differences. Thank you. Quite a profound uh, presentation and uh, provided us the, the data, both raw and, and uh, analyzed data so that we could do the report and be as rational as possible. First, I'd like to thank uh, Richard for your hospitality and warmth and kindness to us. Uh, I very much uh, enjoyed being here and with you yesterday as well as today. <clears throat> Secondly, just to tell you that I'm a sentimental person and we're in Saxby Hall. Well, I knew Bill Saxby when he was in the United States Senate and I worked for Senator Frank Church and uh, uh, he's the only uh, senator I knew that used a spittoon on the Senate floor, and he was unveiled. It was just the way, his way of chewing, if you will. <clears throat> and then uh, during the war over then East Pakistan, which became Bangladesh in 1971, <clears throat> there was a church Saxby Amendment which I was a part of, and we traveled to India together. So reading the sign outside and knowing I'm in Saxby Hall makes me feel very good and, and makes me think about the past. Also, um, I'd like to share with this group uh, at least one area of which uh, I learned, what I learned, being a member of this uh, leadership group. It was clear in the, uh, when I joined that uh, there was a different language being used and it was going to, and it was good language, and it was one that uh, uh, I responded to quite favorably. But I learned from my Muslim colleagues that it isn't Islamic terrorism. It isn't uh, uh, jihad against the world, and it isn't based on the Quran. It's people doing bad things in the name of Islam. 
And I thought that slight change of language was so sensitive and so uh, important as we debated these issues. Uh, and, and, uh, and I saw that kind of uh, hostile language cropping up in our uh, presidential campaign again this past fall. But uh, I was reminded of all this uh, two days ago, or three days ago, seeing a clip of Secretary Clinton in Japan. And she was uh, expressing uh, great concern over Northern Korean uh, abduction of Japanese and uh, talking about the role of the West in the past and talked about bad things that Christians did in the name of Christianity. And so she too has started to use that language and, uh, and I think it's effective. Uh, in pillar one, diplomacy, conflict resolution, uh, it's so much of what Dahlia just put up over these three overlapping areas is, is, is addressed. If you reject the use of force for every international uh, conflict, both real and imagined, if you decide that uh, hard power, soft power, smart power, Joe Nye was here recently, uh, has a role, uh, then let's not skip over diplomacy, dialogue, a desire uh, and a goal to, to uh, resolve conflicts in a civil way and hopefully in an effective way. Uh, and as everybody has mentioned, uh, uh, the report is quite uh, prescient and uh, uh, Paula showed me on page 45 of your reports, you'll see George Mitchell's name mentioned. So there we were, way ahead of things. Um, and maybe he'll, he won't be so pleased of his new job, I don't know. Uh, but the way to, I look at it through the, uh, what are the interests of the United States? What is the interest of the United States toward Iran, toward Syria, toward Pakistan? Now these are three areas toward Afghanistan, four areas that uh, American interests are involved uh, and we always heard over the last uh, uh, eight years, don't take the military option off the table. Well, what if you put the diplomatic option on the table and, and pursued it? We haven't given engagement a chance, frankly, toward Iran, toward Syria in particular. So I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to the next several years as, as we, nobody has the answers. Nobody knows the right thing to do toward Iran. We know we, what we don't want, which is a nuclearized Iran that so upsets the region, the Sunni governments, for instance, uh, uh, that one, two, or three of them decide to go nuclear as well uh, using uh, petrodollars. So uh, there was an effort this past week to think about how to um, find a way that the United States and Iran can cooperate together. For instance, in Afghanistan, which the Iranians wanted to do after 9-11. And it almost happened, but then it, it, it was stopped because we didn't want to answer messages, we didn't want to really deal in a bilateral way with, with Iran. As uh, indicated earlier, I'm involved right now in a 
diplomat, non-official diplomatic effort called Track 2 with Syria. Eight prominent Syrians, eight prominent Americans trying to find ways to overcome the sad, sour state of Syrian-American relations. And over the last eight years, not surprisingly, it's been, the policy has been to isolate Syria. Well, it hasn't worked. So if America is not served by the, first, the current policy of isolation, uh, how about trying engagement again? And that's what uh, we stand for, and we're trying to find ways to bridge the challenges that divide the two countries in terms of interests and find a way to normalize relations so at least we can conduct ourselves in a civil way and not avoid what is, what is real. The Israel-Palestine conflict, the enduring conflict, uh, certainly if America doesn't pay attention, if America utters the phrase, the policy phrase, two-state solution, and then doesn't do very much about that, nothing is going to happen. The Palestinians are deeply divided among themselves. The Israelis are deeply divided among themselves. They've just had a voting referendum on uh, who's going to be in the Knesset, who's going to form the next government. And today, Netanyahu was asked by President Perez to form a government, see what he can do. So he has six weeks to do that. And Israel voted rightward, 65 right-leaning seats in the Knesset of 120 uh, mandates. But there is no resolution of this long-time conflict filled with blood, filled with anger, filled with hate, filled with intolerance, filled with occupation, that uh, if you don't deal with it directly and uh, don't do it consistently and continually, and don't st and and only show up for coffee clutches in Jerusalem and Ramallah. Nothing real is going to happen because there are some big bitter issues like Jerusalem, like refugees, uh, and then the boundaries itself of what the Palestinian state will look like. But diplomacy is the way to do it, and in this case, bold, action-oriented, on-the-ground diplomacy, and we all wish uh, uh, Senator Mitchell success. Um, and, and then we deal with the problem that uh, Dahlia showed us, that the United States is not at war with Islam. And certainly in the presence, in the, in the, in the figure of Barack Obama, uh, so, much, so much of the image, so much of the public diplomacy has already changed and will continue to change uh, as as the days and weeks of this new administration tick on. So if you ever wanted to be in public diplomacy today, now's the time because you got a chance. Uh, the last group uh, got it, made it uglier and uglier, and we all know that for those of us who have been serving abroad over some of those, most of those years. Um, so we're, we're gonna hopefully present right side, the good side, the real side of America to everybody abroad through, around the world. Uh, and finally, if you want to use diplomacy <clears throat> and you want to take on a difficult question, and I look at the, in the audience and there's a range of life cycles here in the undergraduates, graduates, faculty, uh, community people, 
Try Pakistan. If you want to deal with a tough issue, here's a failed state uh, uh, steeped in its own paranoia and its own hatred of India, its own uh, problems and want, want to control Afghanistan uh, with nuclear weapons. I challenge someone here or several of you here to join the United States government and bring us uh, conflict resolution on this score. On the second pillar of, of the report's uh, uh, four pillars, good governance, not bad governance. Uh, you know, I've lived this in, many, in, a, in a variety of ways, but for 12 uh, previous years, I was involved uh, in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and the what to do about post-communism, uh, the societies that uh, had just shucked off uh, communist rule after a torturous number of many years. And what we found there, and I think what you see in, the, in most of the Middle East, is a refusal to pick up on good governance on rule of law, on civil liberties, on human rights, and regime survival, favorite political science term, uh, becomes the modus operandi of all these regimes, Cairo, Riyadh, uh, Amman, Damascus, uh, and, and uh, it, it doesn't lead to the freedom and democracy that are, is in our DNA and uh, I believe is deep in theirs as well, but they know not how to get there uh, under the circumstances. So we wanted, we're, we preach strengthening cooperation. We preach uh, a, a better world using better institutions. Uh, as Dennis Ross said in that film, we want to help in building institutions, institutions of good governance. And, uh, uh, so uh, it's a, going to be a long journey. There, you can, uh, and, and all the poets tell us that in long journeys, you must take just small steps. And one that uh, I think <clears throat> most people in this room would, would, uh, would agree with, uh, you know, Turkey has gone a long way since the end of the Ottoman Empire, since 1918. And it's got a long way to go in terms of its own internal domestic institutions its desire to join the EU, they're being, it's being rejected by the French and others, and that's wrong. So a small step the United States could take here in terms of uh, helping to fashion well-governed societies, functioning uh, societies, uh, not cruel but, but uh, open societies, is to just help Turkey get into the EU, although we don't recommend that in the report, I sure do, and uh, that's what I believe. So I'll stop with those two pillars, and uh, we can go on and on and on, but I think it's time to hear from you. Thanks, Tom. We're going to open it to the floor now for any questions, so please try to keep your comments or questions brief and, and make it more in the form of a question than a comment.
Let me just respond. We, that's exactly what the report says. It says do not use Islamic. It's either Muslims or people in the name of Islam, but it's not. We try to distinguish it's not tied to the religion, and we're very emphatic about that in the report. And in fact, it was listed in most of them. No, but it's absolutely part of the sample. Questions? I see a hand in the back here. Oh, oh, you're here. I'm sorry. Someone's already up at the mic. I'm trying to so, follow the rules here. Yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> Great. Would I suggest those others then who want to ask a question might as well form lines at the mic? I didn't realize that. Please, sir. I'm kind of con I'm confused by the, um, some of the bar graphs that you put up, Dahlia, so maybe you can educate me. When you, you stuck up the uh, difference between Canada and U.S. as evidence that culture and religion didn't matter, because there's obvious difference between the two. But your model is interactive, where you have culture, uh, domination, and crises, conflicts, right? So the obvious answer is, well, you know, Canada isn't dominating anybody, so of course its culture doesn't matter. So it's not, so basically culture plus domination and conflict are jointly sufficient to produce the anti-exism, pick your country. So the, having that graph up there of Canada and the U.S. or France and Germany and Britain and the U.S. just isn't evidence of the point you're trying to make. Now maybe you have statistical data to show that in fact, you know, it's not significant correlation between uh, culture and religion and anti-exism, but those bar graphs don't show it. Um, my second question concerns page three of your report. Um, I'll just quote this. Uh, Many Muslims see the U.S. as complicit, believing that it supported ineffective and corrupt governments in their countries as a way to meet U.S. geopolitical and economic interests. Their anger is compounded by their sense that the U.S. has favored Israel in its conflict with the Palestinians, etc. What I find striking about this, it's preceded by the sentence, the U.S. is not directly responsible for these conditions and frustrations, uh, end quote. What I find striking about this is that the U.S., the behavior of the U.S. is presented as an objective fact. The U.S. is not directly responsible, but the position of the Palestinians and the Muslim world is presented as a subjective impression. Isn't that kind of patronizing and condescending? I mean, is it, is it or is it not true that the U.S. has favored Israel in its conflict with the Palestinians? I mean, after all, the U.S. is allied with Israel. I mean, the U.S. itself, official express policy okay. is in favor of Israel. So I, I, really, I don't understand the difference in the uh, okay. so use of... Okay, let's deal with your questions one at a time. I think what you're saying is 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 important, and and that that concern has been raised before. That just because people aren't resentful of Canada doesn't mean that they don't hate our freedom. But the issue that we're trying to, I mean, the issue that I'm trying to address here in this, uh, those two specific bar graphs, are, are are exploring the idea of whether or not resentment of the U.S. is primarily because of simply a hatred of freedom and our values around freedom. Okay. That is not the case. And when we ask people directly, um, what do you resent most about the West, 
they actually give the same responses as Americans. Uh, so when we ask Americans, what do you resent most about the West? They talk about the moral breakdown of traditional values. And that's exactly what Muslim majorities around the world also say. In addition, um, so that's the issue that we're trying to get at. We're, we're trying to ask the question, is the, is the reason for anti-American sentiment primarily a hatred of our values? And the, and the answer is no, it's not a hatred of our values. Um, it is a hatred of what you said, which is our domination and our perhaps our imposition uh, or the perceived imposition of our values. The second piece is, yes, there actually has been analysis done where people, uh, where we do look at anti-American sentiment and um, assessment of values, and you're absolutely right, there isn't a correlation. What does correlate with anti-American um, sentiment is their views of their own government and uh, their own government and our policies. That's that's the predictor, not their uh, social um, disposition or their conservatism in terms of social values or their their opinion of. Uh, our, our society or our values. Yeah, um, and I, I hear your concern about this paragraph on page three. And I want to say that this report is a consensus document. There was a wide range of views presented by the people in, in the room. We wrote the report and uh, it was uh, an iterative process going back and forth and back and forth between the leadership group and, and the staff in writing the report. So what you see here is a consensus document. This is what we could agree to well, across a broad let me, spectrum. Yeah, and we discussed that paragraph quite a bit. Let me just add a quick one on that. And we can certainly talk uh, offline about that. Uh, the gentleman raised the question. Uh, I think the sentence that says the United States is not directly responsible for these conditions uh, was actually agreed to by the group uh, in the sense that no one, even if we are, even if the United States has done things, which this report documents that have uh, not played well in the Muslim world for good reason, we don't actually cause people to take up arms. People have to make our own independent decisions. And that was part of what was said there. Otherwise, we were simply trying to portray what Muslim perceptions were without taking a stand. We think we have an accurate portrayal of Muslim perceptions. Gentleman was next, then we'll, then we'll alternate on each side. Please introduce yourself. Right. My name is Mohammed uh, Hikul. I am an undergrad student here at the OSU. And um, uh, I understand that I believe it was either a second pillar, or I don't remember which particular which pillar it was, that you have a goal of cultivating um, civic engagement and a kind of um, attitude or culture of you know democratic values in, in certain in the Muslim uh, countries and nations across the world, and my particular concern with that is how could you how could you or perhaps even the U uh, United States government uh, engage in such goals directed towards that while that goal and have the contradictory actions of supporting and propping up uh, non-democratic nations such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia, so on and so forth, where, I mean, if these people were to embrace these values, which they have, and recently mo probably the, most, uh, the country is making the most headlines about it, such as um, uh, Egypt, and let's not forget Gaza, which held a democratic uh, 
uh, election, which was monitored by the UN and also a former President Carter. So uh, does that not seem contradictory and hypocritical at that moment? Yes. <laughs> but uh, this is everyday life. Uh, you know, the reason you have politicians is to deal with contradictions, and the reason you have diplomats is to deal with conflict, and conflicts are based on uh, competing interests and contradictions. Uh, so it shouldn't surprise you that when you, d during the Cold War, our policy toward the greater Middle East was anti-Sovietism, uh, side and protect Israel from hostilities, uh, and access, full access to oil. Well, in that are contradictions. So in, your, in the statement of the strategic goals, you had contradictions. And today, you don't have the Soviet Union. But what are, what are we going to, so every time I hear, this is very personal, every time I hear the word stability, it makes me shudder. Uh, our country was not founded on stability. It was founded on revolution. And uh, as Jefferson said a little bit later, the tree of liberty has to be fertilized with blood every so often. Uh, and how, but how do you, how do you deal with authoritarianism, and it's deep and wide, throughout the Arab-speaking world, as well as other places. Uh, how do you deal with that D desire for stability, at the same time, desire for all these principles that we want, particularly openness and individual expression, freedom. Every, you know, I'm, every time I hear of a journalist being jailed, a, a radio station being turned, uh, closed, a television station being, whatever, I, it drives me up the wall. Uh, and uh, so therefore, I find it very difficult to be on the side of stability. But that's probably, that, then that maybe is a reason I don't want to be in the, gov the government of the United States at this point. But it's, it's still a very tough dilemma for whoever is in the State Department, the Defense Department, the National Security Council, the CIA, the Office of the President, and the Office of the Vice President. Well, I just, I'm not answering your question, I just want to share with you, you know, some of you are budding diplomats. Some of you are going to be in public policy analysis and, and debate. And uh, these are not easy questions to answer. Daria, do you have anything to add? I was just going to say that what our report really focused on is a shift from supporting individuals to supporting institutions. And so rather than um, having an attachment to or, or, or propping up or um, favoring one personality, we would empower or strengthen the process of democracy. And if we can truly do that, if democratic institutions are strengthened, then the democratic process will work and will um, result in a government that is accountable to their people. And we've also said that we will have to be able to accept um, outcomes that we might not have wanted with certain conditions around denouncing violence and so forth and being committed to the democratic process. But the whole issue of the, of the recommendation of the report is in fact addressing that very contradiction, is, is shifting away from focusing on 
um, standing with an individual that we deem to be in our best interests and instead standing with or supporting the building of better institutions. One small point is we had people of different religions who very much urged th this group to say we should accept the results of uh, democratic votes that might even involve uh, instituting religions in a way that are different than the United States separation of church and state, so long as Dahlia mentioned certain other standards such as renouncing violence uh, are met. So this gentleman was next. Assalamu alaikum. My name is uh, Logan West, and um, I'm an undergrad double major in international studies and comparative religions. And um, my question kind of goes off on what the last question was. The first pillar of your report is engaging in dialogue. And my question kind of relates to how should we do that? Because one of the biggest problems we see today is the threat of um, oppressive governments that are oppressive to people, especially in the Middle East, that, are, that don't respect democratic rights or respect civil liberties. And it seems like mostly what we've been doing so far is try talking to these governments and these governments that don't really represent the people of their nation. A government can be overthrown, it can be voted out, but a nation's people is eternal. And should we perhaps, instead of talking to the governments, should we be having dialogue directly with the people of a nation? And if so, how would we do that? There's the public, there's the official face of the United States. And then there are the, the bigger, non-official face. So in any country you want to name, there's an American embassy with officials from various uh, parts of our executive branch. But there are other American uh, organizations, institutions, profitable and non-profitable. And it makes up, it confuses people, what is America? And in the concept, in my experience, I have found that most people who've lived in an authoritarian society in one form or another over the years thinks that, that we're authoritarian too because therefore you are a businessman but we know you're a CIA agent. You work for a nonprofit, an NGO in Cairo and you're, you're there to overthrow the government on behalf of the United States government. Uh, so it's very difficult to get across how pluralistic, how, how different every American is individually as well as the institutions they represent in some fashion. Uh, but diplomats get outside of the compound, good diplomats do. They go out and give speeches to groups uh, up and down uh, these countries. The better diplomats are gregarious are able to articulate not only American policy, but listen to the local concerns, the, 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 the cry of pain and hurt because uh, a relative is in jail. And I, I, I'll, I'll personalize it again. Uh, I go to Syria now. And uh, we're dealing on issues that separate the, the government of the United States and the government of Syria. However, we're not quite ready to bring up the lack of human rights. And I've got to bite my tongue because I've, I have a career in that. I, I, I spent, uh, as I indicated, 12 years in trying to develop human rights, civil liberty situations and, and dealing, we used to call them mod, modernizers, uh, another better, maybe a better word is reformers in all these countries. 
But if, I, if we did that now, these, the folks we're dealing with is in around this table, because we don't use one side of the table and the other side, it's all round, uh, they'd be thrown in jail. So you haven't achieved anything under those circumstances. So we saw this last year and the year before in Iran, where the Ahmadinejad was so threatened by all these grandmothers coming through, through you know, the, the supreme leader and he jailed them. And then you had extraordinary efforts to get them out of jail and back to their families in the West, in the United States. Uh, so this is tough stuff. Uh, but there's ramifications, um, consequences of all your acts, and everybody has a role to play, and hopefully we can do it, all of us can do it well, because we're all, quote unquote, Americans. And every na nation state faces the same problem. Just to say, we're going to run just a few minutes over, but not far. I know we're on honor. We're supposed to end at five. If you need to leave, feel free. But we'll, we'll just take a few more questions, and then we'll need to break. Some of us can stay longer. Nadalia will have a flight to catch in a little while. What did you do? What did you learn about uh, attitudes concerning the Muslims toward our negative contribution uh, to the strained relationship? I read it again. <laughs> English is my third language. So. Uh, what did you What did you learn about attitudes concerning the Muslims toward our negative contributions to the strained relationship? What, what did you learn about the, how the taking relationship? Uh, um, You've been talking a lot about the attitudes yeah. of the Muslim world towards the United States and thinks the United States has been responsible and contributed to. The question is to ask it in reverse. What did you learn about the Muslim world's own perceptions of what their contributions might be, what they might have been, have they done any, that kind of thing, to contributing to the strained relation? Thank you. Oh. Okay, thank you. That's a great question. Um, well, there's several things that I can say to, to answer your question. We, we have asked question, the question, what can the Muslim world do to improve relations with the West? And we asked that question of Americans and of Muslims around the world. And the most frequent response um, among Muslims was actually uh, to help control or, or to uh, m figure out a, a solution for extremism. Uh, so there is, a, there is this recognition, as the video may have I said in the video, of, of this issue. And we also found that Muslims were more likely to bring this up than were Americans in response to the same question. So Americans, when asked what can the Muslim world do to improve relations, their most frequent response was actually around dialogue and then came um, you know, dealing with extremism. The other piece is when, when we ask about the greatest fear they have in their country or their number one um, issue, terrorism or being a victim of terrorism comes up more frequently in the Muslim world than it does in the United States. So uh, this is really seen as a, you know, a mutual enemy um, by Muslims around the world. And, uh, and there's this recognition of of needing to, to address or somehow work on it. 
The other things that Muslims uh, around the world said in terms of what they, what the Muslim world can do to improve relations with the West were um, to respect uh, Western positive thinking and to, uh, to build relationships based on mutual respect. So actually very similar to what Obama's been talking about. Um, the, what, what we find is that when Americans are asked the same question, what can the West do, so the opposite, what can the West do to improve relations with the Muslim world, they really talk a lot about dialogue and diplomacy and, um, and, haven't, and don't address some of the issues that we were talking about in terms of the other aspects of these four pillars. This is not something that Americans are aware of or are not on the, on the top of their minds. Um, they, for the most part, see the issue as one of miscommunication. Yeah, my name is um, Ahmed Ibadi. Uh, I, uh, Can you speak a, into the mic a little more? Sorry. My name is Ahmed Ibadi. I, uh, I run a local mosque, plus I'm a community activist in Columbus here. The thing is, th this study is really an outstanding study, and it's very accurate. Okay, but what we see, and what I want to know is, how do we bring the two directions that are in opposite directions? What are the first steps? to change, we say about changing the direction. There's been talk about a two-state solution, I don't know, for how many years in, in Palestine and, and Israel, whatever you want to call it. But I don't think a discussion of a two-state solution could ever have any possibility of success until every human being, Muslim, Christian, or Jew, in Palestine has equal rights. You can talk about it all you want. You can meet all you want. You can negotiate and renegotiate all you want. And it's been going on for years. And so many people have died on both sides. The first step is Muslim, Jews, and Christians have to have the same rights. And I'm sure there are Muslim, Jews, and Christians are in this auditorium. We live together. We live together in Brooklyn. We live together in Columbus. And we have no problem. Why? Because when we have bad economy, we all suffer together. When we have good economy, we all do well together. There's no reason for anybody to wear a bomb into another one's religion, whichever religion that may be. The other issue is, we talked about Pakistan as a failed state. I don't think Pakistan is a failed state. I don't think how we're going to negotiate with the Taliban while we have radio-controlled planes bombing them every couple of days. The steps, we, I want to know what is the first step to change these opposite directions because the Muslim world is in an opposite direction and the United States in a totally opposite direction and these two directions are in a collision. And that Thank collision you. shows in how many people are being killed and what is being said here and what is being said there and what is being said about boycott of American products. Okay, you know, you're talking about a major part of the planet here who is not buying American products. So all these issues, what are the small steps? And it's going to take small steps to improve. What is the first small step for us as residents of the United States? What do we do to try to bridge this? And there's, there's people here that have organizations, and there's people here that have contacts, there are people here that work together. 
what are the steps that we need to take to improve this huge gap? Thank you, sir. Daya, Tom? Well, the report does cover a lot of what you uh, expressed. But let me just take, I'll give you a small step. And not many people in this country know it, but the American Jewish community, pro-Israel, spends a lot of money and a lot of time on dealing with a crucial issue of equality inside Green Line Israel, and that is pressuring, lobbying the government of Israel to be fair and uh, equal-minded toward its Arab citizens, toward its Ethiopian citizens. Uh, and I can't, you know, I, I presume you know that the American, the North American Jewish community is divided into federations, fundraising centers. There are 155 of them throughout North America. They raise, it, those federations raise uh, $900 million a year, which doesn't count the other uh, charities that go to various causes inside Israel. A lot of that money, of the $900 million, goes to villages, Israeli Arab villages, in the Galil, the Upper Galil, wherever, trying to rectify an unequal educational system. I can't tell you how many times I've been to the Ministry of Education to try to uh, uh, call them on the carpet and stop negating or um, uh, avoiding educating its own members of its own uh, citizenry. 19, 20% of Israelis are Arab and they're at the lowest economic level. Just and produce only 5%, contribute only 5% to the GDP. What if they contributed 19 to 20% to the GDP? An already dynamic economy, a regional leader, part of the global economy, would even be stronger. It's, it, it's a no-brainer. Equality equals national security. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, sell. I would like to actually uh, draw your attention to page 102 in the report where we give specific recommendations for what Americans can do, for what citizens can do in their own community. Um, contact their elected uh, representative to ask whether if they've read the report and what they're doing about it. Contact their local media and seek accurate, unbiased coverage of U.S. Muslim issues in order to promote a well-informed democracy. Participate in interfaith dialogues. Ask their school districts uh, how they're addressing education on these global issues. And actively support um, exchange programs is just some examples. Uh, but I think what the gentleman said is, um, is crucial. We, we do need small first steps. And uh, the issue of equality and, and of talking about um, equal rights for, for all people in, uh, in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is, is, of course, very important. Another issue I think that we need to talk about more is the, the concern we should have for both Israeli and Palestinian security. So 
the, the concept of security needs to really be spoken about when we talk about both peoples, because both people, of course, have suffered um, tremendous bloodshed in the conflict. Uh, and, and it can't, unfortunately, what, we, what we're used to hearing is a trade-off of uh, Israeli security and Palestinian statehood. But really, security is a requirement and a foundational issue for both sides before we can even talk about statehood. We, uh, this gentleman is next. We are out of time. If it's really quick, we may get two questions in, but this may be the last question. I'm going to ask Paula Gutlove to make a very short statement at the end. Um, my name is Mohammed Sultan. I'm with the uh, Muslim Student Association here at the Ohio State University. I'm an econ major. Um, my question is, uh, there's a lot of talk about peace. And I think, um, every, you know, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of stuff about peace, but where's talk about justice, because justice is a prerequisite of peace, and you can't really, especially overseas in the Muslim world, you can't really, you can't really acquire peace without justice. And it's like a catch-22, because you have governments, you have oppressed, you know, governments that oppress the people, of the, and then when people are elected in Egypt, because I'm, I'm from Egypt, and when people are elected, these red people, they're so-called, you know, they're labeled as extremists, or they're put in jail, they're unable to speak. So it's like a catch-22, you can't acquire, and I know, you, you know, Mr. Dine, you know, you didn't really cover the question when they asked earlier, but how are you supposed to establish democracy and the pillars that you guys mentioned without really, you know, acquiring justice first in these countries so you can get to peace, so you can get to, you know, these amazing things that you guys had in the presentation about, you know, uh, dialogue and um, democracy and whatnot. And my second question for Mr. Dine was, you know, we ta you talked about what, bad Muslims did in the, in the name of Islam, in the name of the Quran, and what Hillary Clinton said the other day in Japan, what bad Christians did in the name of Christianity. What happened in Gaza and what's been happening all across, you know, throughout, ever since 1948, what do you say about the bad Jews that did what they did in Palestine in the name of Judaism? Thank you. They didn't do it in the name of Judaism. They did it in the name of a Jewish democratic state. And when uh, the, the, you know, the, the, I'm going to go down the wrong road here. But just remember, uh, the UN recognized Palestine and a Israel in 1947. And uh, it wasn't accepted by one side. And so uh, into an ugly armed conflict and justice is a critical term here and I agree with you uh, I've been a critic of, of Israel a, a public critic and, a, and a, a private critic for most of my adult life uh, and uh, it's it doesn't the, the issue doesn't escape me this report however is about the Muslim world it's not about the Jewish world, it's not about the Christian world, or the Buddhist world, the Hindu world. So, um, you know, you can't cover everything here, and your question indicates to me the amount of harm. Going back to now establishing justice inside Arab countries, the United States can't do it. The United States can express itself, officially and unofficially. The United States can urge it. The United States can uh, uh, offer uh, economic assistance programs, uh, uh, technical assistance programs to set up uh, ways to 
reform governance as well as to uh, modernize the economy. But if it's not accepted internally, it's either going to be bluntly rejected or, or by, it'll be rejected by passive aggressive behavior. Let me, let me just, this lady's been waiting very patiently. Dahlia, did you want to get in on that at all? Um, I think the, the idea that, that justice is, uh, is the foundation of peace is one that we, we definitely um, took into account and understood. And, and in fact, if you look at the recommendations, they are all attempting to uh, work for a, most, a more just order. Uh, so the first step in establishing justice is giving people the safety to even have a dialogue. And so the first pillar is around resolving acute conflicts. The second piece is around institutions that guarantee the rule of law, guarantee that people are accountable for their actions. And so we are recommending the strengthening of democratic institutions. What democratic institutions are meant to do is assure justice, where if you go to the courts and you have a claim against someone else or the government, you will get a fair trial. If, you, uh, if you're elected and then people decide they want to uh, elect someone else, that there is a peaceful um, transition of power. Justice is served by strengthening democratic institutions. And if we can do that, if we can truly do that successfully, then these governments will change evolutionary instead of requiring a, a revolution. Thank you. Last question. Um, my name is Tanim Hussein. I'm a graduate student in the Women's Studies Department here. I was wondering if you could Which department? Women's, Women's Studies. Mike, we can't hear you. Sorry. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about the democratization of um, the Muslim world and how it would avoid this new democratization and how it would avoid um, neocolonial implications of the U.S. or the West. Well, I, I mean, I can start by talking about the idea that we, we really discussed this at length and, and the concept of imperialism and neocolonialism were things that we um, we dialogued on and had conversations about. And that's why we were, we tried to be very careful in the report to talk about, again, this idea of strengthening indigenous institutions rather than imposing um, our idea of democracy. Uh, and that's, that's what's so important about not favoring specific individuals, not getting our guy into power, uh, which is a form of, of course, imperialism, but instead, being more about strengthening a process and being for very specific uh, principles of giving people the space to make their own choice. Um, and I would say that it's not neo-colonial neo for one very important, simple reason. It's because Muslims around the world have said that this is the kind of thing they themselves want. They want they believe in, in, in majorities that moving toward more uh, greater democracy will help Muslims progress. Now when asked <clears throat> about drafting a, a theoretical constitution, um, majorities as high as 90, 95% say that they would guarantee free speech. So these aren't, these aren't values that we're imposing or that we are um, calling to impose on people, but simply, uh, finding ways to 
strengthen institutions so that people are able to live out the aspirations that they themselves um, are saying that they have. Um, anything else? Tom? She said it. Okay. I'm going to ask uh, Paul I was very briefly going to just leave you with a final word about the fundamental principles that unite our report, and then we'll say good afternoon. Okay, well, um, just as we had this conversation with leaders from different uh, communities and different uh, political parties, there were five guiding principles that, that were the basis for our conversation, and they were based to some extent on the data that Dolly presented, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. And the first is that it is possible for Americans and Muslims around the world to live together peacefully, and that was a breakthrough. We're not talking about a clash of civilizations, uh, that we can live together peacefully, we have many shared values. The second is that the responsibility for transforming the relationship is shared. It's U.S. responsibility and it's uh, Muslim leaders have responsibility also. The third principle was that this bilateral responsibility would best take place in the context of partnership, international partnership with leaders and institutions. So uh, we need to work with international organizations, not just have bilateral uh, contacts. The fourth was that understanding and engaging our critics and adversaries is in our best interest. And when you think about the atmosphere that the report uh, took place, that, that, we, that we were working under while the report was being written, the idea of engaging our adversaries was not an accepted idea. Uh, but we were clear that in order to meet our own interests and understand the interests of Muslim countries and communities, we had to engage with them. And the third principle is that, I mean the fifth principle, I forgot how to count, is that uh, the U.S. has a greater impact when we live up to our own ideals. And that's a lot of what we've been hearing in, in many of your questions is the result, the fact that the U.S. hasn't in many areas been living up to our own ideals, respect for rule of law, respect for human rights, being a model of democratic practice. And when we do live up to our, um, our ideals, we can be a leader and we uh, can uh, engage. When we don't live up to our principles, to our ideals, uh, we we are, are not respected and we don't respect ourselves. So the report basically has a call to action. It has a call to action, as Dolly pointed out, not just for government, but for all of society. And we're calling on all of Americans uh, to bring, bring to the cause of changing course their strengths. When we did citizen engagement uh, meetings around the country, we found that people were very interested in changing course, but there's a very steep learning curve. And one of the things that we discovered in the course of our, our work is that the Muslim American community has a very important role to play in helping this learning curve, in being a bridge to helping understanding and developing mutual respect and understanding between these communities. Uh, and mutual respect and understanding, which is the fourth pillar of our program, of our recommendations, 
is the underlying basis for everything else. So we want to invite you in whatever way you want to become involved in the project. We do have citizen engagement programs. Um, we invite you to become involved and to help us so, change course. So thank you. Thank you. That, that concludes the program. Uh, I'm actually, just early, I don't know if she's here, Maggie Lewis, who's a citizen volunteer, is helping to coordinate some of the local activities. I want to thank, I see Rick at the back. I want to thank Rick. Uh, Herman and the Mershon Center and Melanie Mann and thank our able participants. Thank you all for being here and spending your Friday afternoon with us. Be well.